This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. This week, a special two-part interview on Tina Brown's explosive new book on the royal family. I talk with the author about the Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force has finalized its recommendations on low-dose aspirin, and it now says people over 60 should not start taking a daily aspirin to prevent heart problems. That's because the risk of bleeding can outweigh the benefits. For those at high risk between 40 and 59 years old, the panel says it's up to them and their doctors. But if you've had a heart attack, a stroke, or other cardiovascular problems, and your doctor has put you on this regimen, don't stop taking it. I feel instinctively comfortable talking about and I think why is that most, think? I think because it is so intensely personal and yeah. I think there is still a lot of stigma around it. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has revealed she's anxious about how going through menopause will affect her. In a TV interview, the 51-year-old politician said she was in the foothills of menopause, but felt nervous to speak out about the intensely personal experience. But she hopes that addressing the issue will tackle the stigma and help the next generation of female leaders. Scientists from the UK have analyzed the full genetic blueprints of more than 18,000 cancer samples, finding new patterns of mutations that could help doctors provide better treatment. Their study is not the first to do whole genome analyses of cancer samples, but no one has ever done so many. Researchers found 58 new clues to the causes of cancer called mutational signatures. Researchers also created a tool to help doctors apply apply what was learned. The results are published in the journal Science. The world's most expensive lunch goes on sale again this spring when 91-year-old Warren Buffett auctions off a private meal to raise money for a California homeless charity one last time. The Berkshire Hathaway CEO has held the lunch auction once a year for the past two decades prior to the pandemic. Every winning bid since 2008 has topped a million dollars, and Buffett has raised $34 million for the charity over the years. In 2019, a cryptocurrency pioneer paid almost $5 million for the chance to dine with him. Italy's top court has overturned a law that automatically gave all children born in the country their father's surname. 
It was deemed constitutionally illegitimate, so kids now born in Italy will be given both their parents' last names with parents choosing the order or deciding to give just one last name. The right to name a child after the mother already exists in other European countries. Italian parents have been able to keep both last names since 2016, but have not been allowed to give just the mother's surname unless she was single or if the father refused to help raise the child. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Palace Papers promises to share riveting details about the British royal family since Diana's death, and it delivers. Author Tina Brown is the celebrated former editor of Tatler, The New Yorker, and Vanity Fair, and she tapped more than a 100 sources for the juicy details. We talked when she was in town this week, and I wondered if she thinks we misunderstand the royals. I think it's really generational, to be honest, about what people don't understand. I think that the younger generation may not fully understand what a life of royal service, in fact, is behind the sort of media glitter. I mean, a lot of a lot of the perceptions of uh, what it is to be in the royal family for, for the younger generation were, were sort of forged by the dazzle of Diana, right? With, I mean, where she was, uh, this ubiquitous, uh, gloriously beautiful celebrity princess, essentially. And, of course, most of what it is like to be a working member of the royal family has nothing to do, really, with that. It's really about the grind of not very, very often not very interesting things, day and night, you know, very much a sort of routine of, of opening hospitals and, 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 you know, bridges and tunnels. And, I mean, it's, it's quite, uh, in a sense, uh, if you like, quote, unglamorous work. And I don't think that Meghan fully understood that would be most of her portfolio was doing, going to be doing things that she considered actually not, not at all interesting, as a modern woman probably would not. Do you chart a decline in the monarchy to Diana? No, I don't. I mean, I think that Diana was an extraordinary kind of comet that streaked through the House of Windsor, but she was... In a sense, I mean, you know, the, the monarchy had 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 been very different before Diana, and 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 pretty different afterwards. So, I mean, Diana was just this rock star that kind of came and went. Uh, and the book is really about the impact that she. I mean, she hit the House of Windsor like a sort of meteor, uh, and the blast radius behind, you know, that, that that followed her 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 tragic early death, and the endless uh, dramas and explorations and and you know of of it. And of course, the legacy with her two poignant legacy with her two sons. You know, it, it's it's just made the most extraordinary impact that reverberates to this day. Because you know, William and Harry, after not talking about Diana for really many years, and you know, really through, they talked about her a bit in 2007 at the uh, 10th anniversary. But it wasn't until 2017 that they really began to talk about their mother as sort of grown men and putting her front and center in uh, their hearts. Uh, you know, in the expression of their feelings, which hadn't happened, essentially. They'd been turned into Windsors, uh, you know, who, who really wanted to airbrush Diana out of the royal story. So that's not happening now because William and Harry are now grown men who will say exactly what they wish. And, and what they wish to say is how the huge impact their mother left and how they plan to celebrate her at every turn. So that, in a way, has sort of revived Diana. I've always seen the... It, as a kind of... Um, extreme celebrity obsession for everyone but the queen. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's true. But, you know, we've, we've seen, um, you know, William and Kate are now enormous global celebrities, but it's a slightly different feeling to the Diana uh, celebrity because, you know, Diana established her own, her own power base, essentially, outside the royal family, which is why the Queen is, has been so anxious. I mean, in my book, you know, I, I talk about, you know, the, the refrain at Buckingham Palace after Diana's death was never again. And by never again, they meant we do not want to have somebody who comes in and becomes so powerful and so uh, with, with her popularity and so uh, famous and celebrated that essentially she's bigger than the monarchy. And that's what was happening. That did happen with Diana. And they didn't want that to happen again. And of course, then along came Meghan and a lot of reverberations were very similar to, to that time. But um, unlike Diana, actually, I mean, Meghan... Uh, I mean, Diana didn't actually leave the royal family because she wanted to, don't forget. I mean, she only left the royal family because she was divorced. I mean, she would have much preferred to stay um, married to Charles if he'd been in love with her. So, But he wasn't. So she then had to kind of forge this other power base, which she did. So let's talk about Megan. You detail how she got where she got. She It, it comes across that she's kind of a, a brilliant social climber. Well, she's certainly strategic. You know, she's a woman who knew what she wanted. Uh, she's dynamic. She's um, accomplished. And she had her eye on the prize. Uh, certainly Kate, let's not forget, Kate was very strategic too and waited for 10 years to marry uh, William with a large assist from her mother, Carol, who was kind of the Chris Jenner of Bucklebury. <laughs> you know, Meghan saw that Harry, uh, in a sense, he, he did answer a lot of needs that she had. I mean, she was 36 when she met him and... She was, uh, had been very successful in her TV show suits, but you know, it was coming to an end. She wanted to meet somebody who would take her to the next level. And along came Harry. And listen, he, they fell madly in love. I don't doubt that for one minute. Harry's an extremely appealing man and very much her type too. Very much like, um, the chef she dated actually before Harry, uh, Corey, uh, Vitello. So she, you know, she felt that it, it was, it was the perfect answer to, to both their needs, if you like. You know, um, Harry was looking to be sort of, he really wanted to get married at that moment. He felt like Bridget Jones, sort of hanging out with William and Kate, always as a spare wheel. He, wa- he wanted to get married. He wanted kids. He'd seen two of his past girlfriends driven away by the press mayhem. And he was determined it wouldn't happen again. So he wanted to marry. When he met Meghan, he felt, you know, head over heels and decided he had to marry her immediately to stop anything going wrong this time. Uh, but but it didn't. What did you find most surprising about the Megan saga and the interview with Oprah and their break with the royal family? I guess the only thing I'm really surprised at is just how fast it unraveled. You know, that's what really surprised me in a sense. I, I, I did not think it would last, actually, but I didn't think it would unravel in 20 months. Uh, that was extraordinary how fast it went down. And I think everyone was shocked at that and very disappointed. I mean, the, you know, the, the family had really hoped that Meghan and uh, and Harry would become uh, the sense, the sort of link to the younger generation of the new, the new, much more diverse UK, which it is. Uh, they felt excited to have this transformative uh, new member of the royal family there. So they were very, very disappointed and, and, and perturbed and, and so on when, it was clearly not working out. And, and mostly it was the press that, that Meghan felt so assailed by. And there's no doubt they were racist. They were uh, misogynist. They're just, they are, but that is the British press. That's, that's what they are. 
That's Tina Brown, author of The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. And coming up, I'll have part two of this interview. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Will the monarchy survive after Queen Elizabeth? Author Tina Brown thinks Charles and Camilla will likely do just fine. But for Harry and Meghan, the future is uncertain. Here is part two of my interview on the Palace Papers. When you look at what Meghan managed to do and the aftermath, do you like her? I have some empathy for her situation. I think she's interesting. I do. I mean, I I, I don't have the same feelings of blame towards her that a lot of people have in England. I think Harry was a very troubled guy who really wanted to get out. And in fact, one of the people I interviewed suggested, uh, said to me, which really shocked me, I mean, he's a member, close member of the of the uh, inner in team. He said to me, well, we all thought that at some point Harry would leave, that he, you know, he was so unhappy that we thought, uh, some of us, he said, that the best thing that could happen to would be a wife who would come in and say, let me take you out of all this. And of course, that is what happened. Do you think that uh, they are or will be successful at establishing their power base and their, uh, quote, financial independence? And will they maintain that kind of status in the United States? I think the jury's out. You know, I think that unfortunately, celebrity has to be constantly stoked and sort of re reinvented and they have major entertainment deals now with Netflix and Spotify and so on. But then you've also got to deliver the content and you've got to deliver successful content. That is quite a dicey proposition. I mean, all kinds of talented people have failed to do so. So I think if that works out, I think they could be in, 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 in Clover. But I think if it doesn't work out, I think you'll find Harry wanting to go back to England. You detail how Camilla hung in and went through everything she went through, having, you know, been with Prince Charles essentially since the 70s. How is that going for her? I mean, it looks like it won't be that long, perhaps, before Charles actually becomes king and she perhaps queen. Well, she's, you know, the amazing thing about Camilla, you know, she's hung in all these years. And now she's at a point where the British people have embraced her. I mean, she's never going to be beloved like Diana was beloved, but she's, people really like Camilla now. They, she's authentic. She's warm. Her love for Charles is clear. She's been extraordinarily supportive. She's, she's performing all of her royal duties with great grace, uh, and, and, and professionalism. She's taken on some really authentic causes of her own, like domestic violence, which she really has done a lot of work on now. And people, you know, respect her for that. So Camilla's now, I think, in a very good place. Do you think that they will have the power to keep the monarchy together? We've seen a number of countries getting rid of it. And and here in Canada, the polls say everybody, you know, has a huge amount of respect and love for the Queen. But uh, a lot of people say, you know, once it goes to Charles, let's get rid of it. Well, I think that may well happen. I think that actually, you know, they're they're pretty uh, philosophical about that likelihood, actually, you know, that it seems that uh, the Commonwealth is likely to evolve much more into a 
potent sort of federation of culture and trade and the 14 countries that retain the monarchy as head of state, I would not be at all surprised if by William's reign, that is no longer so. But, you know, I mean, in the meantime, Charles and Camilla are coming to Canada in a week or two and, uh, you know, will obviously try to um, represent the current situation with as much grace as they can and, and, and need to also embrace the likelihood that, you know, they won't necessarily be all re- received well everywhere they go. What would you like to leave us with on the monarchy? I think I, I'd like to leave uh, a sense that, I mean, I, I would like to leave actually on a thought on the Queen, because I think this woman for 70 years has served her people. And that is mighty. You know, she's a mighty figure. And I think that as her jubilee nears, we really ought to sort of pause a bit and just think about how much she has given uh, in service, uh, in commitment, in abilities to calm the nation at times of pain, as she did during covid uh, when she really was an important force for stability. And I, I, I think, you know, in the world in such a turbulent place uh, uh, with such terrible things happening uh, at the hands of despots and totalitarian leaders, the idea that we have someone as decent and and um, sort of composed and mature, essentially, who's led, the, you know, who's been the British, uh, head of the British state for 70 years is something to be celebrated. Tina Brown, thank you so much for this. Thank you. That was author Tina Brown, and that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.